This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. We talk about what's new, cool, and we're talking about in the world of books and reading. And this week, what's cool and worth talking about, some of them are new, is our favorite reads of the year. This is our second go around with this, blah, blah, <laughs> blah, hardware, hardware, computer, computer. Uh, our second, I actually added a different, I read something last week that makes my list. So it's up to Ooh. date, fresh and hot off the press. Okay. Um, maybe the most Jeff book I've read this year, which is saying something, because I've gone down with Is myself. it a history of business in 10 business books? Um, Close, but it's worse than that. <laughs> oh, God. So that's what we call a tease in the business. Uh, so these aren't new books necessarily. Some of them are just the things we've been reading. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we'll talk about them for, for a little bit. Uh, before we do that, let's take our first sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Taming Seven is an epic and unforgettable love story in the international best-selling and TikTok phenomenon, The Boys of Tom and Series, from Chloe Walsh. So Tommen's cheekiest lad, Jared Gibsey Gibson, has always been a comedian, but inside he is haunted by events of the past and he uses humor to cope, hiding his true self from the world. Then you have Claire Biggs, who is the epitome of sunshine. She's always loved Gibsy, her brother's friend and her favorite neighbor. She also has always seen a side to him that no one else seems to notice, and she becomes determined to tame her wild-at-heart childhood best friend. So The Boys of Tom and Series is an internationally best-selling YA romance series that has taken TikTok by storm. It's perfect for readers looking for new adult slash crossover romance, dual point of views, friends to lovers, marathon worthy TikTok books, and angsty tearjerkers. Taming Seven is published today and it's the fifth book in the series. So make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay, Rebecca. So I remember from our recording that, you know, there's half, you, we, have, we have your half floating out there in the universe. Um, I could listen to it. I want to take one off the board. Maybe we'll start with a couple of joint joints. Yeah, um, that sounds good. Which we did last time. The book of the, the, the reading experience of the year for both of us, if we have to both give it a rating and average it together, um, and there's an audio reading, and you heard us talk about it at length in a prior show, uh, Intimations by Zadie Smith, narrated mm-hmm. by Zadie Smith in the audiobook, um, was a, a welcome balm of not necessarily hope, but of introspection and intellect that mm-hmm. was grossly missing in July and is a less missing now, I feel like, in some weird way, um, maybe because of elections and vaccines coming in. But it felt like we needed a uh, an eye of the storm of level-headed despair <laughs> about what was going on um, to really take stock of where we were, plus the revelation of Zadie Smith as a narrator herself, um, her performance, her singing, 
um, all good things to come from the future, yeah. I hope. I wouldn't mind her going back to re-record her prior essay collections. Um, mm-hmm. I think the narration is fine. I, after this, I went and listened to um, Feel Free, uh, which was very good, but I did find myself saying, boy, I would really like this better if um, Zadie Smith herself was narrating. So I think that might be the Book Riot podcast pick of the year, Rebecca. I is that so. fair? What else would you say about that? It is. It was a revelation, and it really made me want just a Zadie Smith memoir that she could narrate and sing us through and mm-hmm. be the, it, it did in, in July feel like, oh, there's a grown up in the room yeah. now. Someone who can talk about this as a human and as an artist and be very grounded in like what the day-to-day experience was like and the mixes of hope and despair and confusion and also community. It was really beautiful and just very I really needed it at that point yeah and it's hard to imagine like it was it was a surprise that her version of this came out this way it's hard for me to like guess or imagine what other writers might have potential to have done something like that and I think it was such a moment in Mm. the pandemic for a book like that like it does things do feel different right now and I'm sure that there are writers working on essay collections and reflections that indicate like this moment but this moment is a different kind of thing and I don't need the same medicine that I needed in Mm -hmm. July Mm -hmm. and it was just such a great move um I've re-listened to a couple things she just puts stuff in such big context and also such intimate personal context at the same time and you know talking about the pandemic of racism inside a discussion about the COVID pandemic was so brilliantly and carefully done and that she wasn't just talking about here's what it's like to be locked in your house with your family (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. it was um thinking about the culture of the United States and how all of those elements play together into the responses that we saw or the responses that we didn't see. Yeah, I think you you would be hard-pressed to find a better way to spend a couple of hours on yeah. audio in right. 2020 than to listen to Zadie Smith talk about her experience and prompt your own reflections about it. I find myself wanting a companion collection that would come out right on, you know, maybe hot on the heels of us getting back to normal. What mm. to, to have that same sensibility look at where we are? Like what does it feel to be normal? How does it feel to be normal? Mm-hmm. Does it feel normal? What does and doesn't remain? And you know, I was thinking this week in a different context, funny enough about the many different relationships we have to the books we read as we're reading them and the different relationships we have to the authorial voice or the author themselves. You can have a lot of really great reading experiences where you don't necessarily trust the author, nor do yeah. you need to, to some degree, you know, depending on the, the work. Um, sometimes you really need to, sometimes you really have to give yourself over because it's something you don't know anything about and you're, you're going on faith or expertise or something else, reading about something wildly outside of your experience. But with Intimations with Zadie Smith, I think she enters into a very small um, group of authors who I trust to let them think through for me mm-hmm. something that's going on. Yeah, that's not it, just about they have different information that I do, but that they're that I will trust them to do interesting work. I'm, I'm not going to – I don't swallow anything whole. I, I shouldn't say that, but like – that I'm willing to let go while I'm reading of whatever friction I might feel and mm-hmm. maybe come back to it later. But at least the initial trust of saying, even if there's things here I don't agree with initially, and even if there's, you know, no, you're not going to agree with anyone all the time and no one's perfect and so on and so forth. That's all taking that as said. But insofar as anyone who is not you, can you trust someone to, with their sensibilities, their emotional, intellectual sensibilities. I think I think she's one of those people for me. And now we have a similar age. I think that's important to me mm-hmm. at this point that you're not you're neither several generations ahead or or behind, but right in a very sweet spot for I want to know what she's thinking because maybe I will think that too once <laughs> I know what she's thinking. It. Yeah, it felt the book felt like kind of an outstretched hand mm-hmm. and I felt completely safe and comfortable putting my hand in hers for those yeah, couple of hours right. you know of like that's yes right. let's talk about this and think about this and find some comfort together and also look at some really difficult things together she doesn't shy away from how hard and how scary the experience could be and mm-hmm. I appreciated that 
as well. I think it was that nuance that really made the book land for me, because especially on the internet in the year of COVID, there were pieces that were like, this is how our doom will come. You mm-hmm. know, and then there, <laughs> like, there was a lot of that. And then there was a lot of like, be so grateful for all this time that you have to like sit around and think about your life now. Right. And there wasn't a lot of in between. And of course, like most of life happens and exists in the in between spaces. And I don't think anybody's experience of COVID was wholly good. Um, a lot of people's experience of it was really bad um, or, or continues to be really bad. And she lived in that middle place very nicely. Yeah. I guess to do the other um Pick 1A for the Book Riot Podcast, <laughs> Book of the Year, Eat a Peach by David yep. Chang, which you heard us talk about for a long time. We don't need to rehash that, even though we just gave us ourselves a good six minutes on Intimations again. If Intimations was uniquely positioned, I mean, by definition, to, to come out when it did, I think if anything, Eat a Peach suffered from coming out in the middle of all this, not only because it's not about the pandemic, it's also about restaurants, and it's about... I don't. It's just about a bunch of different things that would have been good for all timelines, and nothing that really was wasn't pandemic related or po- politically related. I think just found hard to have a lot of room, and yeah. I hope that as time goes on, um, more people will turn to eat a peach. I don't know if it's sold. I don't. It doesn't appear on anything. It didn't didn't see a lot of year end lists. We haven't really talked about some of these favorites um, on year end lists, but. It was also, this was a nice escape, I guess, that we could imagine reading this in the normal times and how much it, you know, it really tilled new earth in a genre yeah. which we like, which is the food slash chef memoir. Um, so let's eat a peach. What else do we want to say about what? what do you, what's your lingering feeling about the, the eat a peach experience? It felt like a paradigm shift in what yeah. we expect, as we've talked about from the chef memoir like just yesterday we were talking about a different food book that came out this year of like you know all my expectations about food books are (laughs) reset the bar is in a different place now thanks to david chang um i hope that it'll get some life in paperback and i've also been thinking about in the early parts of the book how he talks about like the cover design process and you know audience testing the different cover designs (laughs) and his own feelings about what should be on the cover and it's a very sort of artsy looking cover and I would like to see a more commercial treatment for it just because I think it should be more widely read like whatever we need to do to get David Chang into the hands of more readers I hope that there is a long tail life for Eat a Peach and that it can join the kitchen confidential pantheon i do think it's so i think it's like this generation of chefs version of kitchen yeah. confidential it this, it has a very different feeling but i think it could it could achieve the same size of impact yeah. if it's a, if it can get the traction and this was a hard year as you said for anything to get much traction at all the analog is super interesting with with kitchen confidential in this regard is that what bourdain did and what became so revelatory, scandalous, and entertaining for those of us who are civilians is show show what kitchens were really like, right? Like this is what it is to be in a kitchen. These are the people there. These are the dynamics um, to tell the truth about that looks like. And David Shang did that for celebrity chefdom, right? Like mm-hmm. that's what's interesting is like rather than peel the mask off um, line cooks uh, in sort of these pirate swashbucklers who, you know, slung clam chowder in New England in the 1980s, it was, this is, this is what it's like to be a celebrity chef. This is what it likes to be a food acolyte. And here's how I encountered it. Here are the dimensions to what happened. Um, and some self, n- no small amount of self-awareness about the weirdness of it and his own failures and his own vulnerability. Um, so that, that, I don't know that that move can be made again, yeah. um, but I'd like to see continuing, uh, you know, peeling back the layers to get to someone telling you the truth of their experience, uh, is always a fascinating read and feels like we get to know more about the universe. And as we said on that show, um, one of the real pains of it was wishing that Bourdain could have done the same mm-hmm. thing. And I don't know that it would have helped. I don't know what else it would have might, might have been for him and for us. Um, but it did, it does tell us, of course, there's more to these people. Of course, it's complicated. Right. Even the performance of the, I'm going to tell you the things I didn't want to tell you 
reminds us that there's still things Chang isn't telling us, right? That there are right. still things that are behind and between the lines there. And that's an exciting feeling. Um, yeah, it, it will be difficult to read. Yeah, The Dirt by Bill Buford's a really good example, a really much more of a more of a piece of stunt reporting. You know, like he mm-hmm. is doing a thing, but he's like going to France to learn how to cook. Like it feels like William Alexander or um, Peter Mayle, like I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to write about it. But the sheen of performance stays there, right? Yeah. Where with Chang, he was at least suggesting that the mask was slipping a little bit, even if not off completely. Yeah, I think there's like a an interesting possible universe where David Chang writes like a leadership and management book, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Even if it's anti-patterns, because, yeah, right, interesting. Yeah, I mean, because like few industries, if any, have been as like, proudly dysfunctional as yes, the restaurant industry that's right. yeah, has been a for point. a very long time. Like only in the last, really only since Me Too broke a couple of years ago, have there been you know big discussions about overhauling the cultures of kitchens like and and Bourdain as you said got famous celebrating that like swashbuckling we're all a bunch of pirate outcasts and if if you can't hang with the abuse you're going to get in this kitchen you just don't belong here Mm -hmm. and Chang grows up in that and then participates in it and then figures out how much damage he's doing or, or is told how much damage that he's doing and has started doing a lot of work to counteract that. And that seems yeah. very much in line with the pushes for like more awareness of sort of overall emotional health and emotional intelligence in workplaces and empathy in workplaces and uh, acknowledging mental health concerns in workplaces. And, Mm. you know, he, he talks about having had consultants and coaches helping him improve, but I think there's sort of a, like a recovery memoir to be had or a recovery memoir slash um, if any, like if anyone can come back from the kind of workplace culture that I created, then you can come back from whatever dysfunctions happened in, in, mm-hmm. in yours too. I think there's a, a version of that that I'd be interested in as well. And he would have the credibility for it. Yeah. And it would be an auspicious moment in say six months for a Changian, this is what a restaurant should be kind of a book mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. um, I, I'm, I feel so so strongly for those people in hospitality industries of all kind, but the restaurant, you know, I felt um, as much as anything, kind of took for granted the restaurant yeah. as a social space, um, and a lot of the value that patrons get out of restaurants happened because of a lot of practices we ourselves would not endorse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's pay or hours or working condition. Um, that maybe maybe we could be learned how to be better patrons and some of that could come hand in hand with what is a sustainable progressive you know future of the restaurant as a business unit that employs people whose livelihoods depend on it look like and restaurants are so have been for a variety of reasons i think are really interesting the workings of them have been so hidden like the back they call it the back working in the back and it's been in the back of our minds. We haven't had to wrestle with it. And, and to find an absence is a good way to look at it again. Um, so that's Eat a Peach by David Chang. Um, those are the two. We, we, we skip hand in hand uh, through 2020 reading those and present <laughs> those to you. Um, let's get back after the sponsor. Um, and we can talk about books that maybe we wouldn't recommend to anyone, maybe <laughs> just ourselves, uh, when we come back. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book, titled The Dare, is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Tor Books. So if you are a fan of epic fantasy, if you're a fan of Scott Lynch and or Joe Abercrombie, but you want something a little different, you want a hero who's like a bit of a mess, then The Silver Blood Promise by James Logan is for you in its Academy dropout slash disgraced noble heir Lacan Cordova's life is in shambles. All he's got going for him is one, he is a card sharp of considerable skill and two, a lot of maybe potentially a little too much wine. So they're, you know, those are the positives. So when the bizarre murder of his father robs him of even the off chance of redemption, Lacan decides to make amends another way. He's going to unravel the mystery behind the killing, even if it takes him to the underbelly of Sophrona, a city of danger, secrets, and merchant princes. Finding the truth is one thing. Finding the truth and staying alive is like a whole other thing. So make sure to check out The Silver Blood Promise by James Logan on sale May 7th. And thanks again to Tor Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay, Rebecca, I have notes here about what you talked about last time. Oh. I don't, you don't have to do any of them. I'm not even going to tell you what you wrote down. I'm not sure if you're going off the same notes, but where, where do you want to go next? You want to go with the biggest surprise or the biggest Ooh. home run, or where do you want to go with your next pick? Oh, that's a good question. I'm, and I think I'm going to talk about many of the things that I talked about yeah. in the initial recording, but um, I think the first time around, we only talked about 2020 books. So I have some non-2020 mm. books this time too. You know, I started the year with a book that came out last fall that I just hadn't gotten to in time. My first read of 2020 was The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. <laughs> right. And that does not need a bunch of explanation here. But that was a hell of a way to kick off a year in reading. And I feel, you know, I want to like go back and pat January 2020 Rebecca on the head and be like it's not actually gonna stay this good honey but it was it was a good way <laughs> to start mm. um that was uh, man it's so good and I feel like Coles and Whitehead is just I I'm like I hesitate to say he's at the height of his powers because I feel like it's very possible that it's gonna just keep getting better that he gets more and more distilled in what he does and how he does it but the nickel boys just knocked me out um and that was a great year, a great way to start mm. the year. So I wanted to make sure I mentioned that one. With Whitehead, you don't know, you know you're going to get something interesting, but you do not know what vector off the previous, what the angle is going to yeah. be, because this one shrunk from Underground Railroad, because you could have seen him get bigger, right? An mm -hmm. epic sort of situation. This was very small, historical fiction with no speculative elements, right? Um, very mm -hmm. much his. his a work of historical fiction and reportage in a way we haven't seen him do before. So I yeah, just continues was... to throw a different pitch every time <laughs> you think you and know what you're going to get. I really, I like to go into books knowing as little as possible. And I had really intentionally avoided synopses yeah. of the nickel boys. And I'm so, so glad that I did because I, I, you just want to experience that with fresh eyes and have it come to you exactly the way that Colson White had wants it to. And it's a, not an easy read. Um, but I don't I, like I don't have a kick off the year with a happy book sort mm, of thing. No. I just want to kick off the year with a book that feels like a solid start. And it was a really, really solid start. I'm going to go and you've heard me talk about it before on this podcast and others. Um, my favorite novel of the year is Deacon King Kong by James McBride. Um, it's gotten some additional end of year kind of plaudits as we've gone along. I still think under read and I still think easy to chalk up underperformance of any new title to the pandemic. Um, I don't know if things were different, if this would have had a bigger moment. Um, I don't know if sometimes great books that are literary fiction, thriller kind of strange. It's, it's, it's a strangely strange mainstream work of literary crossover fiction in this, in this regard. It doesn't have, it's not experimental, but it's also not a straight ahead I don't know, literary fiction. And so far as like something like Transcendent Kingdom by Yah Jesse, much more of a conventional work of literary fiction in, in tone and approach. I think the subject matter is quite different and it's very exciting in that regard. But even something like Vanishing Half, which continues to sell very well, and I really like that book as well, mm -hmm. feels more like an easier pitch to um, a mainstream book club kind of a reader, which Dink and King Kong isn't. It's, it's a little zany, it's zanier. And zaniness tends not to be something that gets picked up by the mainstream for whatever yeah. reason, right? Uh, maybe it's 
attitude. Maybe it doesn't feel serious enough. I don't know what, but screw all that because this is a great book <laughs> and it's going to, I think, become, um, if not a cult favorite, because I think it may be more popular than that, it will become a favorite. And it will become a favorite of mine to recommend because it ticks a lot of different boxes simultaneously. It's it's both funny and serious. It's both a mystery and like kind of a whodunit. You know, there's a what's going to happen element to it, but also on the level of language and prose, it's also very exciting. So you get a little bit of everything. Um, a Swiss Army recommendation, if I ever there ever was one. That's Deacon King Kong by James McBride. <laughs> So good. we're Bob and I are watching the Good Lord Bird adaptation, yeah. also James McBride on Showtime. And I had tried to explain like it's about the run up to the Civil War and you're with some like enslaved people that are trying to get away. But also it's John Brown and Ethan Hawke plays him like a true crazy person. And it's weird and zany and like also really serious. And it was just impossible to convey the flavor of that yeah. like, until we sat down and watched it. I think it, that McBride kind of defies really like solid articulation for what to expect, but in the best way. If you take Whitehead and throw in like, you know, a, a, a good two tablespoons of Tarantino, you might be describing sort of a McBridean experience. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Um, where do you um, want to go next, Rebecca? You know, I thought that this book was going to be my book of 2020, and it would have been if not for COVID, but Weather by Jenny Awful. Yeah. My homegirl, Jenny Awful. That book just landed right in the existential core of what I was feeling at the beginning of this year and seeing a main character in early to mid 2016 before Trump was elected wrestling with just the day-to-day lifeness of being a woman in her middle age dealing with mundane family things and questions of meaning and purpose and also sort of like is there really giant doom coming our way what is this all going to shake out it was so relatable and it's uh, and relatable, like in a challenging way. You know, I think mm-hmm. sometimes we talk about a book being relatable as in like, oh, it made me feel good. And I think more like Jenny Awful made me feel seen. And it was seen in like cobwebby corners of my soul that I would prefer not to put the flashlight on, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, and I think that book would have it, it's a tough it, it's a tough thing to carry that into the 2020 pandemic mood um i think it would have really had a bigger life and longer legs Um, and i'm sad about that i hope it gets some sort of rejuvenation as we emerge from this but it was a highlight of my reading year and i think it really would have been a defining experience of my reading year in a quote-unquote normal kind of year yeah what a great book and you know that one was teed up to capture big election energy, I think, for those of us of a certain persuasion and, and sensibility. Um, and it did, I think, but yeah, it didn't, it couldn't have, and didn't see what else could have been a, a it, it metaphorically applicable to the pandemic. I think yeah. by extension, a lot of the similar kinds of things um, were, were available there. Um, but I do hope it gets picked up again. Um I'm going to go, my next one is a reread that the Nobel Committee did me the great pleasure and and, and service of reminding me how much I liked Louise Glick, and it got us to talk about tomato poetry, which will be, I think has now entered the 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 pantheon of us at our mo- usest uh, for yeah. what we do here. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did get to go back and read The Wild Iris, the collection from which that poem Vespers, which we spent some time talking about, came from. Um, we got some emails about people buying The Wild Iris for, for as gifts. Um, oh, I sent it along to my mom. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a book where the Flowers have feelings and a perspective, but not in a way that it sounds like. But you know, kind of see <laughs> Glick seeing the world through different perspectives, um, and she's she's wonderful, and mm-hmm. it's challenging and affirming at the same time. Um, there are no answers here, but questions elucidated and articulated to give them form and substance, which itself it's its own kind of work. And can it be its own kind of reassurance? Um, you can return to it. One of the wonderful things about poetry that I also forget when I wander too far is how easy it is to pick up, um, almost like a devotional. 
and mm-hmm. just take a look at a couple in a way that's very difficult, if not impossible, for me to do with fiction or nonfiction or memoirs or whatever else, essay collection, short stories. You just, Picking it up for 10 minutes and being dropped into and then emerging out of the world of art for language is much more difficult to do than you would expect in poetry and the Wild Iris especially um, lends itself to that. Yeah, that was the best discovery, I think, of my reading mm-hmm. here was jumping into Louise Glick and then you know getting to imagine Louise Glick going to therapy to talk about tomatoes. <laughs> uh, Which we I should really- say is a whole... <laughs> Whole, wholly fabricated by your imagination. We have no idea if, what Glick has talked about um, backyard vegetables with her therapist. Who knows? But, you know, what you were just saying really rang true because I got through the last part of 2016 and the early days of 2017 reading mm. like a Mary Oliver poem every morning, like a devotional. Like that's just what I had to do. Um, and in the last four years, I've learned very many of them by heart and I was I was needing something to go into a new space and a new way of thinking mm-hmm. about things and Louise Glick feels like a really nice next yeah. uh, next step from those as well so she just came at a really good time for me also um, I guess related to that feeling and the way that she engages with the natural world is um, World of Wonders by Amy Nezukumatatil mm. which the first time we recorded this show it was still like kind of under the radar but now it's been picked as the Barnes and Noble book of the year yeah. which I am delighted about because I think that it should be read widely and she should make a lot of dollars for selling many books. So I'm thrilled about that. But it's this this beautiful, slim little volume that kind of defies categorization. There's um, short vignettes, a page or two each. Each one is about a different plant or animal or like some element of the natural world. And she's blending facts about that thing with reflections from her own life experience that those facts sort of bring up or trigger for her. Mm. Um, There's a great example that I think the Paris Review published this year called My Cephalopod Year. Um, The example I remember the most from the book is um, the flamingo section where she's writing about flamingos and their long legs. And then it just sort of all of a sudden she's talking about being a teenager in a tall, beautiful body and going dancing and getting attention from men in a way that was both exciting and terrifying. And what do you do with this body? And then all of a sudden you're back in the world of flamingos again. (laughs) And it's like you just go on this whole ride over the course of a couple pages um, that you can also dip in and out of and read, you know, like one or two vignettes at a time. It's really lovely. I haven't read anything that quite does what she does with that blend of um, sort of nature thoughts and reflection. Um, and it it rang a bunch of my bells. Um, I'm hoping that it will ring a lot of readers' bells now that it's getting really wide publicity. I think on our agenda for tomorrow, we'll put on the that selection of Barnes Noble Book of the Year, because then we can talk about, you, you did a beautiful job talking about the book itself, but like the move, that, that structure. I think Barnes Noble has a hit on its hand in this format, this annual pick. Yeah. Um, and we can talk about sales a little bit too and some of the packaging and strategic stuff. I'm really looking forward to that. It makes me wonder, Rebecca, I feel like, again, availability bias, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) I feel like we might be in a bit of a nature writing renaissance golden age, you know, kind of going back a couple years where you can write a book about eels now and it's a bestseller. You can write, there can be multiple books about octopuses coming out, (laughs) Helen McDonald's vest reply, like, you know, Ed Young, like this cross science, nature, literary i don't know i'm not sure the way i'm thinking about it is like when i was a young reader right was this a thing right in the mm. 90s was this a thing and i yeah. feel like it wasn't in the same way and i'd love for people to shoot me and tell me not shoot me shoot an email to us and tell me if i'm wrong um but it does feel like there's an appetite for the complexity of the natural world that isn't that science forward but not all the way forward you know it's not mm-hmm. Stephen yeah. Jay Gould right it's not right. Stephen Jay Gould but it's also not <laughs> sort of like look how beautiful trees are like it's somewhere in the middle yeah it's I think it blends the beauty and the terror of the natural world with the beauty and the terror of being a human yeah um, right. like uh, the world of wonders feels very much to me like in the same kind of book as um when women were birds mm. or braiding sweetgrass, I think is in there. 
um, Helen McDonald, you're right. And my working theory on this, I think about this collection of writers as sort of like modern transcendentalists right. um, who are like their experience of something sacred comes through nature. And I, th- as our society becomes less traditionally religious, people are still looking for that sense of being part of something that's bigger. And there's nothing better than being out in the natural world to mm-hmm. have that, whether it's, um, and like this is from my own experience of it, whether you're like standing on top of a mountain or like scuba diving and being realizing really how tiny you are in the giant ocean of things. <laughs> and that people who can translate that experience into something that we can read and all relate to, I think is a special kind of magic that there is, I, do, I think there's real appetite for it. And Milkweed Press, we should say like Milkweed Press published braiding sweetgrass they published and um, the home place by j drew lanham which i've talked about, about on the show before they published world of wonders they're doing a lot of this work um to you know highlight writers who have not historically had mm. voices in publishing in general but especially in like outdoors and nature focused writing as well so stoked to see barnes and noble pick not just this writer and this book but a book from a small press too. yeah that's really really interesting to see um, let's do one last sponsor break and come back with a, a couple of last picks. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary Inez Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, black resistance, and the enduring power of family. Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Anise Hegler, the Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Anais Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. Thanks. Um, I'm just going to shout the deficit myth by Stephanie Kelton, which you heard me shout spontaneously <laughs> on an early, earlier show about mon- modern monetary theory. Um, if you're interested in kind of the state of the art, thinking about how money works and how maybe we've been getting it wrong since we went off the gold standard, what the alternative ways of thinking about money, especially as it relates to government if you're interested, worried, excited about, say, $900 billion stimulus payments from the government uh, and multiple ones over time, um, if you have people in your life that are like, well, we're going to have to pay for this somehow, um, I think you'll be interested in this book. I, it really opened my eyes. A branch of finance and economic policy I didn't really know about. As I've gone on my busman's MBA, let me tell you, Rebecca, <laughs> the bus is now... Uh, the, it's like the mystery machine from Scooby-Doo at this point. It takes all comers. It's painted a bunch of different colors. Um, 
but truly an adventure. It's machine. really an adventure machine, and I've come all the way back and around and again in my explorations of the world of business and finance and management and leadership and so on and so forth. But this was an important um, addition as well as a way of sailing. The newest, the newest um, rider on the bus of Jeff Busman's MBA <laughs> is a book called The Wisdom of Finance, and the author is Mahir Desai. I read this last week. I don't know how I came across it. I don't remember. It's just one of those things like, I'm going to read this book, and I picked it up. Started out, um, Mahir Desai teaches um, teaches in the business school at Harvard and was asked to give a lecture. They have this last lecture series for graduating seniors or um, uh, B-school people. They're graduating. Here's a thing. We're going to send you out to the world, kind of like a commencement address. They used to call it differently. And Desai wanted to offer something to these people who are going out to work in hedge funds and private equity and consulting firms, um, something other than, I don't know, you know, something other than the, the, the pablum you're often given in commencement speeches. And so what he decided to do was, can I connect the logic of finance to the other arts? Can I connect mm-hmm. finance to poetry and history and music um, and s- the lecture apparently went very well and had wonderful, wonderful responses from the students, really feeling that they were giving some they were giving something to be nourished uh, at the end as they were going to go out into the world of making dollars, I believe is the profession they were going into. And so Desai wrote a book, and each chapter connects major elements of finance to works of literature and art and the great questions in philosophy that have been asked since time immemorial. So one question, one, one of the ideas is um, portfolio diversification, and he uses um, Vanity Fair uh, <laughs> as people trying to select husbands as a way of uh, portfolio risk management and portfolios, uh, one, and optionality, uh, connecting insurance to the fall of the uh, French monarchy. Um, and really, really, at Wallace Stevens and insurance. Uh, Wallace oh, Stevens, man. who was also an insurance executive, but also thought about what poetry does in relationship what what insurance does in the world. So, um, as you might imagine, there is no dopamine left to fire in my body. <laughs> like it's all shot out like a like a sunspot oh. into the universe when I'm reading about Wallace <laughs> close readings of Wallace Stevens poetry oh, and why insurance works. I just I start vibrating and become a glowing form, like whatever the human version of plasma is, that like the fifth state of matter. That's what happens to me when I'm reading the wisdom of finance by Mahir Desai. I'm not sure that, that it's the perfect great. version of this book, but since there's nothing like it in my experience, it don't yeah. matter. <laughs> there's a um, financial professional in my household who's going to be hearing the pitch for that yeah and I'd be curious shortly. I would be curious how Bob thinks about this book like is it just is this book written just for me I wonder sometimes when reading like I don't, I mean, I don't know I, maybe I don't, not I think- you use whatever analogies are available to you. And yes. in his like 20 year career, I have heard many examples from a variety. Of I can only sources. imagine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, that sounds that that sounds really great. Um, man, we're down to the wire. Here. I know. I'm going to do some quick hits. Um, the only short story collection that I read this year, which it's weird for me to only read one in a year, um, was I Hold a Wolf by the Ears by Laura Vandenberg. And if you're going to read one short story collection, you are hard pressed to do better than Laura Vandenberg. Um, all the trigger warnings for all the things, like there are mentions of suicide on page one. It has some tough mm. subject matter. But she does this just like almost alchemy in her short stories where you're talking about one thing and then all of a sudden these other feelings are on the page and the characters mm. all tend to be going through something or searching for something with that is a very real and grounded feeling but there are these surreal elements that sort of pop up when you're not expecting them and I've loved her for many many years her book um, what the world will look like when all the water leaves us is I think the short story collection I've had the strongest feelings about in my life to the place that like I'm not ever going to reread it because I'm afraid that it'll feel different. Um, But I loved I Hold a Wolf by the Ears. Um, She's just a great sharp voice. And the two books that I had the most fun reading this year are We Ride Upon Sticks by Quan Berry about a girls lacrosse team near Salem, Massachusetts in the late 80s who sell their souls, who make a deal with the devil um, using a notebook with Emilio Estevez's face on it in order to get a winning season. And it's just fun and smart and packed with 80s 
pop culture references, but also deals with questions of gender and identity and all sorts of other stuff in a really great fun way and does a plural narrator, a a plural first person narrator, Mm. which is really hard to do well. Uh, And then The Switch by Beth O'Leary, which is about a young woman in London who is forced to go on sabbatical because it's apparent to everyone but her that she is burned out. Uh, while at the same time, her grandmother, who lives in a small village a few hours away, has just sort of started to come out of the mourning process after having lost her partner and is thinking about experiences that she's always wanted to have but hasn't. And one of those is living in London. So the young woman and her grandmother switch places. They live in each other's homes. They hang out with each other's friends. In the case of the younger woman, she goes to her grandmother's like town meetings in a very stars hollow but with really cranky old people mm. um, situation. There are just characters everywhere Um, and they both have romantic experiences and some adventures in love and it was just really fun Um, Amanda raved about that so much that I had to pick it up and I'm really glad that I did it was probably the most delightful thing that I read this year um, speaking of Amanda, just uh, just off the top of my head, I forgot I subbed in for Jen Northington on Get Booked uh, Mm. yesterday which I guess that episode will be out next week. I'm a little unsure where they are in their timing, but I got to talk about some books. Some stuff you've heard me talk about before, but it was fun to join. Oh, nice. uh, Amanda over there, I let, I got a wild card at the end here for you. You're not ready okay. for this. This is my favorite time. <laughs> wish I could bottle this feeling. <laughs> Book you're sad you didn't get to this year, oh. that, you're, that you're going to get to, but that you just just didn't get to already. I'll go first. So you have two okay. minutes to think of it. All right. I'm just the new, the show. new Susanna Clark, pure and easy. Is that what you, I don't know how you say it, but I love Jonathan Strange and Mr. Now. I was so excited. And when this book came out, I just, uh, to, to paraphrase and Helen Parrison, paraphrasing people couldn't even, it was just, you know, it's fantasy. I, I like it, but it was like, came out around the election. It was like, I couldn't get there. My body wasn't ready for it, but I'm sort of glad I missed it. Cause I have, you know, the winter break is coming up cozy time, a little time off. I'm very excited to sit down on like a Sunday late afternoon and blow through it all in one. I've heard really great things about it. I'm really, I don't even know what it's about. I've done that thing that you did with Whitehead. Like, I don't know, but um, I'm really excited to get to that one. I'm sad that I didn't, but delayed gratification is also gratification. It's true. Yeah. Ooh, okay. I'm looking at my shelves right now. And since you surprised me with this question, I'm going to give two answers. Yeah, there you Um, go. That's fair. One is Just Us by Claudia Rankine, Mm -hmm. which is really on my list too of this kind of beautifully and interestingly put together i had pre-ordered it i flipped through it the day that it came in the mail and i was like oh i'm gonna need some time and some brain space to give to this so i'm planning to read it over the break um and some stories by ivan schwinard who was the founder of patagonia and i think we both have read oh wait he has a book and there's another one what is that It's called Some Stories, wait, wait, Lessons from the Edge of Business and Sport. Mm. And it's a huge hardcover. Oh, it's, 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 wait, you mean format or a lot of pages or both? Both. It's like the size of a coffee table book, but there's a lot of text. Gosh darn those pedagogues. They want it to look great on a coffee table when you walk in. Look, I get it. it. I get that. It's a $45 coffee table Oh, come on. (laughs) With a bunch of beautiful images from his life and from climbing and from the early days of Patagonia. And I understand it to be a mix of stories about his life in sport and then ultimately founding the business. I know we both really liked Let My People Go Surfing, yes. which was his first book about business and starting Patagonia. And I just want some, also some time to hang out with him. I really like his voice. There is a, there is a world in which I will read that book. Um, am I going to buy a $45 coffee table book? I'll see. Maybe I'll see what the format's like on iPad because I'm sure it's beautiful with photography and it's like a statement piece, right? Mm-hmm. We should be. These are coffee table book table books because, like, for <laughs> nerds like us, we put we put more coffee table books on those tables than coffee cups. You get a ring, even a ring there. It's for feet <laughs> and coffee table books. That's what that table is for. Agreed. Totally misnamed. <laughs> yeah, the just us. I that one is. I think I need a little more time. I need a different... I, mm-hmm. I don't know what I need to do to get into the right... Maybe after Piranesi, I'll be sort of blissed out and taked away, taken go. away a little bit. I can return. It can bring me back to earth uh, a little bit, Rebecca. A good year in reading. It always is. Yes. Um, I Like I said, sooner rather than later, we're going to do our spring preview show. Um, 
headlined, as we said before, by Kazu Ishiguro's a new novel coming out in March. While we're here, let me just give you a little taste of what I got. Oh, I'm ready. I haven't yeah. heard anything about this, so hit me. Uh, I, that book, I don't know what it's about. We have a new Stephen Johnson coming out. Uh, we have a new <gasps> Helen Oyeyemi coming out. We have a new Patricia Lockwood coming out. <laughs> we have a new Adam Grant book coming out. There's a new Cal Newport book coming out. <laughs> there's, there's, a so new, much... there's a new Zen Cho book coming out. There's a new Je- uh, George Saunders book okay. coming out. Um, there's a new Jumba Lahiri novel Ooh. coming out in May. There's All a new right. Caitlin Greenidge book. There's a new um, Viet Tan Nguyen book coming out. There's a new Kim Scott book coming out. Got lots to talk about. New Isabella Allende, new Andy Weir, new Mbolo Mbue. <laughs> I can, now I'm just reading the whole thing. They're all exciting. It's also it's a exciting. lot of dopamine potential there. Yeah, it really is. It really is. There's something so satisfying about turning the calendar um, and seeing. I wonder what the big surprises will be for yeah. us uh, to see what's coming up. Anyway. I don't know. It'll be, be fun to find out. And I'm going to get one last shout out in for Blacktop Wasteland by S.A. Cross. Oh, you did mention that. I was going to ask you because you talked about that on the last show. Which and was super fun. Amanda recommended to that to you. That's a real burner. Mm-hmm. Car chases and stuff. I want to get to that yeah. too. It's a great one. That's a good one for, uh, you know, you just want to like plop down on a Saturday and be under a blanket and read a good suspense book. Also, I read The Lost Man by Jane Harper, which you recommended to me on this podcast recently. And that was a good, I burned right through that. Jane Harper has a new book coming out as well. Um, So anyway, uh, shoot us an email, uh, podcast at bookriot.com, whenever you'd like. Sometimes we'll talk about them on on the show. Be warned. Sometimes we won't. But we always like to hear from you all out there. Rebecca, we'll talk to you f- tomorrow yeah. for our last regular show of the year. Yeah. And actually, I think we should let folks know, because this comes out on the 21st. And oh, right. We'll be yes. Off, we'll be off on the 28th, and then we'll be back on January 4th. And January I'm pretty 4th. sure that that show, January 4th, is our favorite non-book things of the year. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's what we're recording tomorrow, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Favorite non-book things of the year. Yeah. And um, have you worked on your list yet? Do you know what we're going to talk about? I have started my list, but it, this has been such a year of being in my house that it's like, these are things I watched on TV this year. I was struck by a <laughs> bolt of, of memory lightning, remembering a movie I really loved that I saw this year. That was I was mm. so glad. I was, but it was like temporal vertigo. Of like, that was this year? Like, what else <laughs> happened? What else do I not remember? I didn't like that feeling. Like, I'm glad I remembered it, but I remembered that I probably forgot a bunch of stuff yeah, at the I, same time. I went back through my like history on Netflix and Hulu to help jog my memory. Yeah. And then I should probably, I don't know, look at the receipts of online purchases <laughs> in my email inbox or something. That's it. Reminds me of that scene in Parks and Rec where the credit card company calls to make sure that the actual charges were things Leslie had bought. And they're reading them over the phone, and Haverford is just delighted to hear about, like, I think the bucket of cake uh, was the low point. No, no, yeah, it was they're... a boyfriend pillow, a pillow, a boy, a pillow in the shape of a boyfriend. Yeah, maybe I will um, recommend the ridiculously big uh, REI fanny pack. I got oh, there you year. go. That would be a good segment. Is this something we actually bought or not? And the answer is always yes. <laughs> In the year of COVID, yeah. absolutely yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Rebecca. We'll talk to you soon. Have a good one. Bye.